You're listening to the Yoga Teacher Resource Podcast. Knowledge, techniques, and inspiration for your teaching and your practice. I'm your host, Mado Hesselink. If you're a yoga teacher who loves learning, is passionate about spreading the benefits of yoga, and desires more resources to support your teaching, you're in the right place. Let's get started with today's episode. Do you ever wonder about the most effective way to structure your teaching business? Whether you should focus on teaching private sessions or group classes, offer courses, or start a membership? Well, in today's episode, I'm going to break down what I know about the different ways to structure a yoga business and the pros and cons of some of the most popular approaches. I've been mentoring yoga teachers one-on-one for the past seven years. I've been teaching group teacher trainings for the past 12 years and group classes for almost 18 years. I launched my first digital course about two years ago and my first membership about a year ago. I've also participated in each of these different formats as a student, a participant, or a client. So I have a lot of experience with different formats for teaching and learning, both online and in person. Today, I'd like to share some of the pros and cons of the most common types of services from both the perspective of a teacher and a student. In this episode, I'm going to share a basic framework for progressing the structure of your offerings, starting as a brand new teacher, and evolving as your skill set and your following grows. If you haven't yet heard my episode from last year called The Three Phases of Teaching Mastery, I do recommend that you listen to that before you listen to this episode. I'll put a link in the show notes to make it easy for you. Let me be clear, though, that I have no illusions that this particular progression that I'm going to describe today is the right one for every single yoga teacher. I am sharing it because it's the path that I believe is most likely to be successful for most yoga teachers. But please, please, please measure it against your own instincts and your personal experience. And if you're able get some one-to-one personalized feedback from a business coach or a business mentor before making a really big, any big commitment to deciding which way you're going to go. I also want to offer a special caution to beginning yoga teachers who evolved into this path midlife. The skills you have developed in your previous careers will transfer to teaching yoga to a greater or lesser degree based on what it was. So it might make sense for you to actually start partway through this framework, depending on the skill set that you bring to teaching from your previous life. Also, one of the best things about being your own boss is that you get to break the rules. You get to make the decisions for yourself. So if anything that I say just doesn't land for you and you're like, I just don't want to, then you have my full support to do things completely differently. As you're making decisions about how to run your business, there are lots of different decisions to make, including the size of the group you want to teach, the length of commitment, live versus pre-recorded, in-person or online, ongoing or specific time frame. Your offering might include just one of each or even a hybrid. So for example, you might offer live in-person private sessions with a 12-week commitment or an ongoing online membership with a combination of live and pre-recorded content. So with this complex of a rubric, it would make complete sense if you felt overwhelmed or confused. 
especially if you're just starting out. So my main goal with this framework is to simplify things a little bit, to hopefully cut down on the number of decisions you feel like you need to make. As you listen to this framework that I'm going to share with you, you might notice one big glaring omission, and that is dropping classes. I generally don't love the dropping class model, even though it's the most common way to offer classes in most of the world. Although I can see the benefit as a student, I can see the appeal, they're not actually in the best interest of either teachers or students over the long run. If you're already offering drop-in classes and they're working for you, then that's great. Keep doing what works for sure. You might consider adding some of these other types of offerings alongside your drop-in classes. If you're currently offering drop-in classes and they're sort of working, but you find the inconsistency frustrating, you're definitely not alone. For most situations, I recommend that you keep your drop-in classes while you develop better structures to work with your students. And once you have a business model that's more consistent, then you have the freedom to either limit or let go of your drop-in classes. If you're currently teaching drop-in classes and they are not working for you at all, for example, if you frequently show to no students and it's causing anxiety and self-doubt, you can definitely drop them and find a better way. I hope this episode will give you some ideas of what that might look like. And by the way, if you're a brand new teacher and your drop-in classes are attracting students regularly, it is completely fine to keep them, even if you aren't making money yet. When I first started teaching in a studio, I had two regular students for the first six months, and then probably less than five for the first two years. I was so grateful to those students because their consistency gave me a reason to keep showing up. But I definitely want you to progress and be successful a lot more quickly than I was, which I think is totally possible because when I was getting started as a teacher, there was no information, no education out there about business for yoga teachers. At the same time, any business program, any business education will tell you most businesses take about three years at minimum to start turning a profit. Now, I know that might sound scary, like, uh, but I don't have the money to support myself for three years, and everybody's different, so I'm not making a prediction for your specific situation. What I am saying is don't be disheartened. If you've been teaching for a year and a half, or two years, or even five years, and haven't yet really made a full income from your teaching, it's absolutely possible. And I hope this episode will help point you in the right direction. Okay, let's start with the first structure that I recommend, especially for newer teachers, but, but it can also be great for teachers of any level of experience, and that is one-to-one or private sessions. One-to-one is a very traditional way to teach, and it can ultimately get the right person the quickest results, but I don't think they're the right fit for every student. Note I said student and not teacher, It's a judgment call for you whether or not you enjoy working one-to-one. Most students, though, don't have the resources to pay for an unlimited number of private sessions. Learning the basics or foundations is much more cost-effective in a group setting. Investing in private sessions makes sense when you get to the point that you want to go deeper, faster than a group setting will allow. Or when a student has a cognitive or a physical limitation that 
means that they need more individualized attention than the rest of the group. That would be another good time to invest in a private session. Private sessions are very rewarding as a teacher because you can really customize the work, the practice, and the teaching to the specific person in front of you. That said, one-to-one sessions are much more time and resource intensive on the part of the teacher. You have a limited number of hours per day you can be working, and if you're working each hour with one person, then that limits the number of people that you can help. So from the perspective of efficiency, it makes sense to offer one-to-one sessions when you have a smaller audience. So maybe that's because you're a newer teacher or you moved somewhere or you're new to teaching online. If you have a limited number of people seeking your services, then offering one-to-ones is probably going to maximize your ability to be compensated for your time. Now we know as yoga teachers, compensation is not the only factor involved, but as a newer teacher, one-on-ones also provide the best opportunity for you to learn about yoga and about teaching and about other bodies because you can ask so many specific questions. You can be almost in a conversation or a dialogue with your student without interrupting the flow or the concentration of the other people in the room. So for that reason, I highly recommend that newer teachers start teaching privates as soon as possible and focus on that as your main teaching structure until you get so booked that you don't have the bandwidth to add any more clients that is the perfect time to start expanding into a small group structure. Small groups can be in-person or online, and they balance the benefits of personalized attention with the advantages of community support and group learning. They also offer a great way to offer individual support in a way that's more cost-effective for populations who aren't able to pay for one-on-one sessions. Small groups are most helpful when the participants have a lot in common. For example, they're all brand new beginners or have a similar goal. As soon as you have a handful of students learning together, you can shift some of the responsibilities from your shoulders as the teacher to the shared accountability of the group. This provides multiple benefits. First, by reducing some of the hand-holding you might need to do for your neediest students, you free up your own energy to focus on the pieces that only you are capable of offering. Second, when you create structures that allow your students to teach and support each other, they actually learn the material more deeply themselves. Finally, seeing examples of other humans embodying and sometimes struggling through the same questions and concerns in 3D is exponentially more powerful for teaching, for learning, than any story that your teacher might tell you. Small groups generally benefit from being live rather than pre-recorded because a live session will be of higher value to your students while requiring less time and energy on your part, which is a win-win. Pre-recording high quality content takes a lot of time and energy, which likely won't be justified by the tuition paid by a small group. At the same time, you can customize the content for the needs of each group when you teach it live. So in essence, teaching small groups live provide the best of both worlds of more value 
in less time. Finally, when you teach the same program live multiple times, you will automatically refine and update and improve the program and also your teaching skills based on the real-time feedback you get from the students. By watching their reactions and hearing their questions, you will learn what is landing and what you need to clarify or go into more depth around. Now, if you do already have some pre-recorded content, you could definitely include it with your live sessions as a bonus. It might also make sense to pre-record content for a small group if you have other plans for how you intend to reuse that content. In this case, you can think of the small group as paying you to create the content in the first place while understanding that it's likely that the profit will come later. However, unless you already have a lot of experience in creating pre-recorded content, I recommend getting a lot of practice teaching live before you commit to recording. Bear in mind that I'm making a distinction here between recording your live sessions, which you can then either offer the attendees as a bonus, or if they missed it, or even sell to other people, and creating more polished pre-recorded content. Okay, so if you're in the phase where you're going to be working primarily with small groups, this could take the form of either a series or a course. And either way, the big ask you're making here is a commitment. There isn't necessarily a super clear distinction between a series and a course. The way I think about it is that a course will have more specific learning outcomes while a series will have a theme that has perhaps some learning outcomes, but not as clear of a promise of what people are gonna get at the end of the series. Ultimately, it doesn't really matter if you call it a series or if you call it a course. What matters is that you're communicating the value to the students of making a commitment. I already shared my opinions about drop-in classes in the beginning of this episode, but I definitely don't recommend offering small group sessions on a drop-in basis because there's so little wiggle room in your ability to get compensated fairly in a small group setting. Basically, you need to calculate exactly what you want or need to make each class, then divide that by the number of spots, and that's how you know what to charge. Or you could divide that by what you wanna charge and use that to determine the number of spots. But either way, you've basically figured out ahead of time how much you wanna get paid for your time. And if you offer this as a drop-in, you have zero control over whether or not that happens, and you can't even predict it on a class-by-class basis. Now, if most of your classes are currently drop-in classes, your students might be hesitant to commit to a series. In this case, I would start with a shorter series so that they can experience the value of having that stronger container, and then make it longer or maybe even transition into a membership when your students start to see the value of them making a commitment to their practice. Once your small groups are humming along, maybe you even have a wait list or have opened multiple groups, it's time to start thinking about expanding into larger groups. The simplest thing to do, of course, is to just slowly increase the number of spots in your program. With larger groups, you do lose a bit of the personalization of a small group, However, this might be the right time to start using more pre-recorded content, 
which can do a better job of leveraging your time and expertise. Earlier, I mentioned the difference between recording yourself teaching live versus creating more polished pre-recorded content. And you might wonder, well, why would I even do that if I can just record myself teaching live? And the main thing is that when we teach live, we waste a lot of time and we're not as efficient with our teaching. And then we also sometimes forget big gaps of things that we intended to include. So that's why pre-recorded content is more polished, it's more efficient, and it's more comprehensive. When you first start incorporating pre-recorded content into your offerings, I recommend using a hybrid model where you teach the main content in a pre-recorded video and then answer questions in a live setting. Once you've done that a bunch of times and you're really confident in the content of your videos, then you can sell your course entirely as a self-paced experience. Bear in mind that a lot of people do struggle to complete on-demand content like that, and most of us thrive on the community aspect of classes, workshops, and events. So consider your topic, consider your population and your goals when deciding whether or not to offer a completely on-demand program. And by on-demand, I mean pre-recorded so that your students can watch the content whenever they want to. They don't have to make a commitment to showing up at a specific time. I do want to put a note of caution out there that many people think of on-demand pre-recorded courses as this holy grail of passive income, but in truth, there isn't really any such thing. You will always need to market your courses, and the way that people learn about, choose, and consume these courses and this educational material is constantly changing. So even when you have a pre-recorded course, there's going to be ongoing work, and it's essential to stay connected to your students and their needs and their desires as they change and evolve. Another way you could structure your teachings when you're ready to scale into bigger groups is with a membership. In a membership, students sign up to be charged monthly until they cancel instead of for a predetermined length of time. This kind of ongoing commitment is fantastic for consistent income, and it's also a really big commitment on the part of the teacher. The idea of getting paid each month without needing to promote all the time might seem extremely appealing, but there's some other important factors to take into consideration before you jump in and start a membership. First, you need to crunch the numbers to figure out how many members you need to justify the time and energy you will put in. And real talk here, whatever you currently estimate you think it's going to take, you probably need to 10x that. Memberships are a lot of work, especially if you're thinking about offering a lower cost membership. You need to take customer service into consideration. When people are paying you on a monthly basis, they're going to ask you for all kinds of exceptions. They're going to ask you to do all kinds of extra things like create customer seats for them or put their account on hold. And you want to make sure you actually have the bandwidth to do all this and to answer all these emails or that you can afford to hire some help with it. Make sure you also think through how you'll take time off or what you'll do if you get sick because you can't just delay the start of a membership or take breaks in between sessions. 
I definitely recommend keeping the idea of your membership as simple as humanly possible when you first get started. But I'll also tell you that personally, I would not ever run a membership on my own without help. Actually, I tried last year. I mean, I was trying to get help, but it ended up taking longer than I thought. And so I ended up starting my membership pretty much on my own, and I will never do that again. Also, no matter how amazing your membership is, remember and be prepared that some people are going to drop off and you will have to replace them even just in order to keep your membership the same size. So while consistent revenue is possible, when it comes to the membership business model, you still need a plan for getting new members on a regular basis and for keeping the ones that you already have engaged. If you allow people to join at any time, then you don't have the benefit of the course or series model where there's a deadline to join. Deadlines are incredibly powerful for getting people who are already interested to actually take action and commit. If you do want to add that dynamic of urgency and timeliness to the way you promote your membership, you can open and close the doors to your membership several times a year for a membership drive. This will include several weeks of intense promotion, but will allow you to take breaks in between those periods where you focus more exclusively just on serving your students. Whatever strategy you choose for finding and retaining new students, remember that you're allowed to evolve and grow over time. If you're a more experienced yoga teacher and you feel inspired to create a membership, I would start it sooner rather than later and keep it as simple as possible in the beginning. Jump in and learn as you go because you will learn so much more with real world experience than you will by over planning and overthinking everything before you've even started. In this discussion about memberships, I'm kind of assuming that you're an independent teacher teaching online, but the model is actually very similar for a studio. The added complexity at a studio, though, is that you'll probably pay other teachers to deliver most of the classes, and you'll need to account for a significant amount of overhead with rent. Running a studio is outside of my area of expertise, but I do know that you need a much larger student base to account for that increased overhead. I've seen a lot of yoga teachers with zero business experience jump into opening a studio out of passion. And it is incredibly intense. I can just tell you that from the outside, I can only imagine how intense it is from the inside. So for those of you studio owners listening, wow, I see you. I am so very in awe of you. If you were to ask my opinion, I would definitely advise that if you're thinking of starting a physical space, that you start with a small home studio where you're the only teacher at first, if you can, so that you can get a taste for what it's like to have that physical space without the pressure and stress of commercial rent and a bunch of employees. If you do want to rent a space and hire teachers, make sure you get some business training and run all your numbers so that you know exactly how many students you need to keep that business thriving. In addition to private sessions, small groups, courses, and memberships, There are some other formats that you might want to consider. Retreats and workshops are similar to a series or courses in that there are one-time events that you commit to for a specific amount of time, but they tend to work better as a supplement to your other business model 
rather than being your core offering. And the reason for this is that they tend to require a lot more promotion than a regular class. And due to the specialized nature of the event, it's less likely that you can rely on the same core people attending again and again the way you can with a series or a membership. Workshops are a wonderful way to introduce new people to your work or go deeper on a specific subject than you could in a regular class. Retreats take that to the next level by removing your students from the context of their daily lives and allowing themselves to immerse in their practice with fewer distractions and fewer responsibilities. Workshops can be in-person or online, self-hosted or in partnership with a studio. Retreats are usually run in partnership with a retreat center who specializes in taking care of the food and the lodging. Workshops can be worth your while financially with even just a few participants, while retreats tend to rely on larger numbers to actually be worth your while because of the fact that you have to incorporate travel costs and time away from home. Also in a retreat, you're almost always splitting the profit with the retreat center because they obviously need to make a profit too. So what they charge becomes the baseline for what you need to charge your students. And in order to keep prices reasonable, a lot of yoga teachers end up tacking on just a few hundred dollars per person. Depending on how far you need to travel and how much this disrupts your routine, including, don't forget about missed revenue from your other classes, you might want to temper your expectations about how much income you'll receive from running retreats unless you have a very large audience and can get a good number of people to sign up. Now, if you live somewhere that many people want to visit, running retreats, the whole shebang, is a different business model that I don't know much about. It's definitely more sustainable because you don't need to travel and you can create rhythms and routines around your retreats. If you're able and willing to take on the hosting responsibilities as well, then that would also leave more of the profit from the retreat fees in your own pocket. Another business model worth mentioning is teacher trainings. Teacher trainings can be incredibly rewarding because of the level of passion that your students are likely to bring to the relationship. Many yoga studios have centered teacher trainings as their bread and butter, while drop-in classes are more of a loss leader, meaning that they're a way to attract people to the teacher trainings. Many studios have poured their heart, their soul, their passion into their teacher trainings and do an incredible job. But running a teacher training is an incredibly big project, and running a studio is also an incredibly big project. So there are definitely some teacher trainings that were put together a little bit too hastily by a studio owner who maybe wasn't actually ready to teach one. And worst of all, there has been a dynamic in some studios of students being pressured to take teacher trainings when they weren't really ready or interested in the first place. So as I talk about teacher trainings as a business model, I'm going to assume that if you're thinking of running teacher trainings, you are a yoga teacher with high integrity, that you've spent the past decade or more studying and practicing with consistency and with passion. Running a teacher training is a really big project, and it is not what I would call easy money. There are a lot of moving parts, and that starts with creating your curriculum. The first time that you run a yoga teacher training, if you're thinking about it, Make sure you find a mentor who has already done it multiple times to guide you. There are so many facets to a great yoga teacher training, 
that you're definitely going to have gaps and weak spots because it's your first time and we all do the first time we do anything. One thing that's easy to underestimate is that your trainees are going to be undergoing deep transformation and a lot of emotional wounds and baggage can surface. So if you have the budget for it, best practice, honestly, would be to have a therapist on staff to help you set boundaries and create safe containers for your students if and when they need to process. That might not be realistic in every situation, but I really just want to put it out there what a big responsibility it is to take on the role of teacher trainer and don't do it lightly. Teacher trainings can be relatively lucrative, especially if you compare them to dropping classes. I mean, think about the commitment that you're asking somebody to make, uh, a student to make, between a one-hour drop-in versus nine months or a year or a year and a half. It's a big commitment. If you feel called to offer trainings, I think that's wonderful. I want to encourage you to take your time, to get a mentor, to start small, maybe start with a small group teacher training before trying to get as many people into your training as possible. And also recognize that running teacher trainings is not for everyone. It is not the next logical step once you've been teaching a certain amount of time. If you have a healthy membership or you teach continuing education workshops around your area of expertise, that is probably likely to be more financially sustainable over the long run than offering 200-hour or 300-hour teacher trainings unless you have a big staff and you have a lot of people helping you. It is just such a big project to do it well. Teaching yoga is a passion-based career. It's definitely possible to make a sustainable income through your teaching, but it's far from easy. If you'd rather teach as a hobby than as a career, that's wonderful too. If you do want to make your teaching a business, Make sure you choose a business model that fits your strengths, your needs, and the needs of your students. As you can see, there's lots of options out there, and you don't have to figure out the right one right now. You get to try a bunch of different things and allow the structure of your offerings to evolve over time. No matter what business model you choose, the most important piece of being an effective teacher of yoga is that you have a strong relationship with your own practice. And by the way, what that looks like is probably also gonna evolve over time. So I hope that hearing about these different business models was helpful for you, that it clarified some things and gave you a path that you feel like you can follow. Most of all, I just wanna encourage you to keep going. Keep learning, keep sharing what you've learned, keep experimenting, and keep showing up. I promise to do the same. As always, thank you for listening and thank you for caring enough to teach yoga.